Salutations, listener. This is Dunkern writer-in-residence Colin Hazard saying welcome to the Dunkern podcast. Once, twice, three times a podcast, and I love you. That's right, we have made it to episode 3, and if you haven't done so already, please hit that subscribe button to make sure you never miss another episode. Now, I'm not sure that we've had enough episodes yet to call some of you regular listeners, but if you have heard previous episodes, hopefully this already sounds like a better quality episode, because last week I was in the Dunkern Arts Centre raiding the audio store for a better microphone and recording equipment, and if it doesn't sound any better, then it's probably my fault because most things are, as my wife would agree with. But getting the new microphone was only the second of two birds that I was killing, as the main reason I was in the Dunkern was to record a few poems for First Fortnight, who are a Dublin-based charity that challenge mental health prejudice through arts and culture. And every January for the past number of years, they organise the First Fortnight Festival, which is what you would expect from an arts festival. There's a mix of music and poetry and film and talks and and all the rest of it, but with the focus being on improving mental health and raising awareness. The event that I'm part of is called Therapy Sessions, which is actually four events that are being recorded in the four cities of Dublin, Belfast, Cork and Galway, and then broadcast online over four different nights in January. So the Belfast show has been recorded at the Dunkern, and features Dunkern favourite Joshua Burnside, along with fellow musician Gemma Bradley, the author Tony Wright, and the wonderful poet Elizabeth McGeown. Elizabeth was actually coming out of her recording as I was going in to record mine, as obviously with the COVID restrictions we can't have people unnecessarily in close proximity. Uh, and the Belfast event is being hosted by the Dublin poet Stephen James Smith. He, well, he's, a, he's actually hosting all of the therapy session events, as he's one of the organisers of First Fortnight. And you may have seen Stephen online, particularly on YouTube, where he's racked up hundreds of thousands of views on his poetry videos. Not that I'm in any way jealous, of course, but Stephen was at the Dunkern as well. And the Belfast show is being broadcast on the 9th of January. Tickets are available now on a pay what you feel donation basis. So if you'd like to get tickets or know more about the First Fortnight Festival, you can visit their website, which is firstfortnight.ie. And Fortnight is spelled with a G and no E which is the correct way to spell it, despite what your video game console may say. But just on the subject of mental health, I mean, I can honestly say it was brilliant just to get out and chat amongst people again. You know, I've hardly seen anyone this year in the real world beyond my closest family, and you're probably the same. And yes, I've had phone calls and video calls, etc. But to see Elizabeth and Stephen and to be with the film crew again, who I'd met uh, during the Dunkern's Take Two recording, and to chat with all of them and to get a bit of crack and banter was just unbelievable. So thank you to everybody for lifting my spirits on a cold December day. Looking back at this year, you know, I slipped into the first lockdown probably a little too easily. I was quite happy to sit at home and although I was busy, I didn't have to go anywhere and I quite liked that. But we're all creatures of routine and it can be very easy to get into that routine of of being a hermit, for want of a better word. But I would recommend that if, if you're listening to this and you have been feeling down or unmotivated, or just not yourself for any reason. And it's understandable at this time of year when it's dark and it's cold. Um, but if it's safe to do so, then really, you know, try and push yourself to get out and meet people, not necessarily with a group like I did, even just out with a friend for a walk or a bike ride or a, a cup of tea or just somewhere for a change of scenery, because you will feel better for it. You know, it is it is the season for togetherness and all that. So that recording was, I guess, the most interesting and important thing I've done over the past couple of weeks since last we spoke. 
I actually had to go into Belfast City Centre a couple of times as well as the letter T on my laptop keyboard stopped working. Now that was a hassle to have to go out and get that sorted. You know, of all the letters, T is pretty much the worst consonant to lose functionality. So it was it was no longer the Dunkern Art Centre, it was he, Dunkern, Arsenry. And uh, what I actually had to do for a day or two while I was waiting for an appointment was, you know, for example, if I had to write an email, I opened an old Word document, copied the letter T from it. And then as I was typing the email, I actually had to paste the T in every time I needed it, which was a hell of a lot of hassle. Uh, but thankfully, the repair shop was still open and I would definitely argue that it's providing a vital service. Uh, but that's enough of my first world problems. In more positive news, we had a brilliant response to the last podcast with Joby Fox. And since then, I've heard various stories from people who remember Joby's band, The Bank Robbers, from the Good Vibrations days. And the stories mainly entailed a lot of partying and crazy antics around the venues and streets of Belfast. So if I am able to get Joby back on the podcast to ask about these scurrilous rock and roll rumours, then I'll definitely do it. However, this week's guest is a very talented comedian and actress called Diona Doherty. You may have seen her in Derry Girls as the Russian, Ukrainian exchange student Katya, or in Give My Head Peace as Uncle Andy's long lost daughter Grania, or in Soft Border Patrol as Tracy Jones, or heard her on Radio Ulster as part of the Perforated Ulster, or on a stage performing stand-up comedy, or I could go on. Uh, but as well as acting in hit TV shows, Diona is also a fine writer of comedy and indeed forthcoming stage plays, which we discuss in our chat. But aside from acting and writing and performing, Diona was also in the news last month as she, along with her husband, the comedian Sean Hegarty, announced that they are expecting a baby next year, having gone through a long IVF process. So as you can gather, there was plenty to discuss. And Diona also gives some fantastic advice which is aimed at writers and performers who may be listening, but I think could be applied to anyone no matter what you do. And I certainly find the discussion inspiring. We recorded it at the end of November when I still had my old dodgy microphone. So please forgive any technical issues you may notice. And if you're wondering about where the name Diona comes from, all will be revealed very shortly. So here's me passing over to me. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Dunkern podcast and I'm very pleased to welcome a very funny lady, a comedian and actress called Diona Doherty. Hello and welcome. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you doing? I'm grand, we've been talking for about 10 minutes but I'm like, hiya, how are you doing? <laughs> this is what we have to pretend for the purposes of it. Yeah, for the online world. And you see you're in quite a bit of a winter wonderland there, you've got the Christmas tree up already. We're still in November, I should say, at this point when this interview is recorded. You know what? We were actually supposed to put our decorations up today, but last weekend was so boring that I was like, I need to put up the decorations. So we just started putting them up. And I have, well, I've got six, I've actually got seven trees, but two of them are full sized and the rest of them are like small, like two to three foot sort of trees. But yeah, I absolutely go hell for leather. I had a Christmas themed wedding. My wedding was, my wedding anniversary was yesterday, four years. And we had like Santa at our wedding, give out presents to the kids. It was clattered in Christmas decorations with a choir come sing like Christmas carols like it was so Christmassy with a Christmas dinner and all for our dinner <laughs> one of my questions was are you a Christmassy person but I think you've just answered that 100% I absolutely love Christmas I'm literally look at my Christmas mug I'm drinking out of a Christmas mug right now it's got reindeers on it seven trees does seem excessive though well if you add the size of them up all together I bet you somebody has a tree that's bigger than all of my seven put together now to be fair the seventh one I only really discovered was a tree this morning it's like a little wooden one that's like this maybe about four inches high when I used to live at home in Banbridge we had two trees one was in the porch 
and then one was in the living room was kind of the main tree and the main tree was decorated by my mum kind of beautiful decorations and really well put together it was all you know the Marks and Spencer's decorations were on that tree and then she, yeah. she let my dad and I decorate the one in the porch Shitstorm. yeah it was like Christmas exploded on a tree just <laughs> all the crap decorations awful tinsel and, and just uh, really over the top and then she realised that the first tree that people saw when they came to the house would be the explosion tree. Yeah, so we got we got hauled off that job. I like Sean's kids, like thankfully don't care about helping putting up the Christmas decorations like they used two years ago when they were younger and they'd really get involved and all and they'd be like, ah, you can do that. And then you would undo it and redo it yourself. But now they're like so past it. They're like, we don't care about putting up the decorations. So it means that they're all done exactly how I'd like them to be done now, which is great. What do you, what, and this is your, your partner, your husband, I should say, Sean Haggerty, who's yeah. also a comedian. Uh, what age are the, the kids? Um, 11, 13 and 16. So they're all big. Uh, they're kind yeah. of past the magic of Christmas. Only finally this year. This is the first year where it is completely gone. Um, but like, obviously, they still like getting presents. So that still happens. But yeah, the, the magic of it's gone. The sort of like listening out for sleigh bells and, you know, visiting Santa. All that's completely, completely done now. Which is a wee bit sad because even... Sean and I were talking this morning about, you know, all their presents as they become older, kids' presents become smaller and more compact because they all become digital. They're no longer like, you know, a bike or things that you have to pit up that you spend half the day on Christmas Day assembling and teaching them how to use it. And the whole day and the place is covered in boxes and everything becomes more compact and smaller and digital. And you, and you almost feel as if like that that ruins the magic of Christmas too because you're not assembling anything and there's nobody playing it's just oh that's for your room and that goes under that device and then this sprays on my neck and then there's clothes so it doesn't really seem the presents are so different as well when they're older yeah the presents the presents get uh, more expensive but they get smaller and it doesn't look as much then as well I know and they would get people would overcompensate like I am like we're very strict when it comes to like overspend in the Christmas like I as much as I love Christmas I don't I hate the commercial side of it so I don't me and my friends don't buy to each other none of the adults on either side of our families buy to each other on my side in the Dorries or on Sean's side in the Hegarty's and we don't even buy to nieces and nephews and I know that sounds pure scroogey but we just all decided why are we putting ourselves under that massive pressure so instead we just meet up in sometime in December and have like a big dinner or drinks or a wee party on both sides of the family and that's so much more like making the point to do that feels more fitting for Christmas than it does just like a money swap when you, even when you so we even did Secret Santa for a few years and we were like well let's just like spend x amount each on one person but even that was just a money swap then so we just we stopped that as well obviously this year now there is no meeting up so there won't be that either yeah and how how has this year been in general in terms of your career and performing and performing has been very there's been very little you know um obviously when everything happened whenever like we went into our first lockdown in March I was devastated because I had so much work lined up for this year that and it all got cancelled and I think in a space of about 48 hours 72 hours like just 10 months of work wiped out in two days and obviously you then just get really worried because the start there was there was very little financial help as well for people who are self-employed it was like oh god what are we gonna do here now and also just the boredom of having to be at home a lot but I think um, after the first lockdown, then then I think lots of companies evolved and figured out how to work alongside the virus. So like, for instance, 
we were able to just record so much radio stuff remotely from home. I got so much writing work, so I was able to write from home as well. So then work really picked up. So it's actually been uh, actually been quite busy recently, which has been great. But then obviously the you know the self employment grants and stuff came in that meant everyone would was able to access eighty percent of their previous earnings. So that really separated the layers from the people who were being honest on their tax returns. How much did you fall into? I was so honest that I was like, happy days, I'll get 80% of mine. Because I know so many people that are like, oh, I don't want to, want to, want to write everything down. But then you, you balls it up for yourself then in those circumstances, don't you? Yeah. But I mean, you've been, you've been flat out over the past number of years uh, with various performances and acting gigs as well. I, mean, I suppose, I guess most notably was probably the uh, Dairy Girls. Yeah, and I think um, because I do such a variety of stuff as well, I'm never too quiet as regards work, you know, because obviously I act, but I also do stand-up and I write a lot as well. I, I only started writing about a year and a half ago, but it seems to be nearly full-time now at the minute, so it's great. It just means that, I mean, it's like anybody, when you work for yourself and you work in entertainment, you never know when the next job's going to come in. So to keep your finger in off different pies, I think, is the best, the best advice. I guess... We could work through all those different pies that you've got fingers in. So starting with like the acting, mm-hmm. is that is that something that you grew up with? Or did you always want to be an actor? Um, I, I, did, I always wanted to be a performer, but I didn't know in what field. Like I knew I wanted to be a performer. Um, and I was always creative and I was always maybe like the class clown or involved in, you know, amateur productions and school plays and stuff like that. But I think I went through a stage where I definitely wanted to be a pop star. <laughs> I went through a stage of wanting to model, like I was doing everything, and it, until I really found that, like, and I don't think I really settled on pro- on acting until I was maybe about twenty one, and I was like, oh no, this is this is what I'll do. <laughs> the rest of them have rejected me. <laughs> <laughs> and then singing as well. Have you got a good singing voice? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that held me back too. Yeah. I can sing it. I can I can hold a tune like, but you're. De- I'm like the person who would do your second verse if I was in a pop group. I wouldn't do the, wouldn't open. I wouldn't be your like, you know, the first person who sings. And I also wouldn't do the key change because I wouldn't be able to handle it. And um, but you also wouldn't stick me just on the chorus because it'd be a bit harsh. I think I would do the second verse, but I would definitely. You, I wouldn't sustain a solo career if I broke away from the group. Yeah, so we're talking kind of like a posh spice maybe. I wouldn't say I'm as brutal as Posh Spice because I don't think she ever had a line by herself, but I would say I'm maybe Jerry. And also, I never even tried for it. I, I, do you know what? Actually, I, I auditioned for, do you remember You're a Star on um, RT? Yeah, vaguely. You're a star. Do you remember? It's like the, one of the first, like Louis Walsh was in it, I think, and like Pete Waterman, I think. And mm-hmm. uh, I went and auditioned for that when I was like 16 and it was brutal. I mean, like, I remember at the time practicing singing with like my boyfriend at the time whenever I was a teenager. But I was like, don't look at me, turn around and let me sing to your back because I was so embarrassed because I didn't sing in front of people. And then we, we like went on the bus to Dublin. I didn't even tell my parents. We went on the bus to Dublin and I auditioned for You're a Star. And they, <laughs> I don't even think I've ever said this anywhere before, but they wouldn't let me through. <laughs> like I auditioned and they were like, no. And then I was all, what? I've got a great voice. And they've come the whole way from Derry to Dublin. It's a four and a half hour bus journey. And they were like, can you sing some Shakira? And I was like, yep, okay. 
I didn't know any of the words though, and they were like, just have a go. And I just did a Shakira impression. And I was like, I'm gonna do at 16. And then they were like, mm, still no. <laughs> <laughs> and it was never televised, thank God. I died of embarrassment. I completely forgot that even happened. So yeah, so like, I think then I was like, mm, this isn't, I gotta explore a few other avenues before I find what I'm supposed to be doing here. And then did you go on then and, and study acting? Well, I went to Queen's and did drama. Now, I wouldn't say, like, to be honest, it wasn't a particularly good course. Definitely isn't a course catered for actors at all. But then I suppose they are, it, it, was, it wasn't performing arts, it wasn't acting, it was drama studies. So you were studying all aspects of theatre and, and dramatic literature and business even. Theory-based. Theory-based, yeah, and I hated it. I did not enjoy it. So yeah, I don't think I would. I don't think if if you wanted to be an actor, I, I really don't think I'd recommend studying drama anywhere. You have to study performing arts, which is which is a different course. And then, so what was what was kind of your first acting gig then that you got after that? I got two things around the same time, and I really can't remember which came first. One, well, actually, so my first TV gig was um, Sketchy, which was. A, ske- a comedy sketch show that was on BBC One NA. It was called Sketchy with Jeremy Core. And I didn't even get to speak on it. <laughs> I auditioned for a speaking part, but they didn't give it to me. Um, I was in it. I don't know if you remember anything from it, but basically there was a few scenes where I think like Jeremy, who was the lead actor, comedian in it, his character was like involved in like pranks and stuff. I don't know. It was like a reoccurring sketch. And I played a character called Pam. She doesn't need a name. She doesn't speak. I don't know why they even gave me a name, just to be nice, maybe. But I remember, do you know Kieran Bartlett, the comedian? Oh, yeah. So him and I were together on the top of this bus, and they had, like, a dummy done up to look like me, and they would throw it off the bus. And then, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what it was about or where the comedy came from. I'd probably need to go look it up again. But I remember being off Queens. This is, like, my first year at Queens, so I was 18. And I remember having to take, like the morning off to go film one of the sketches and then I came into my class late and I almost came in with such a chip on my shoulder like a really ego when I was like flipping my hair being like yeah sorry I'm late I was actually just off filming for a BBC sketch show so guys I'm not going to be here for long because I'm like in the process of making it I'm going to be a star (laughs) yeah these guys continue pretending to be bags of sand and I'll go off and be on the BBC (laughs) what I was thinking and, it did, and, it, and around the same time, then I got my first theatre job and it was the vagina monologues. Mm-hmm. And I had to replace Pamela Valentine because she couldn't do a couple of her shows. So it was Pamela Valentine, Olivia Nash, and I think Carol Joey, who's like a, a, a theatre maker from Cookstown. And there was a couple of shows that Pamela Valentine couldn't do. So I went on and replaced her. Um, and I remember it was my first like proper, you know, paid on the on stage theatre gig. And Olivia Nash, obviously, I grew up watching her on TV and get my head piece playing Ma. And I remember going into her dressing room beforehand, and she she had these wee nerve tablets, like wee like um like holistic ones or not holistic ones, like just ones you get in Holland like and her, Like yeah, kind of herbal. Tablets. Herbal. Yeah. And she was like, she was like, oh, I get so nervous before I go on stage. I always have one of these in my mouth and one in my pocket in case I need another one and then she gave me a wee nerve tablet in case I needed it and I was like she is so lovely and that was my first bit of live theatre as well so obviously but even like it's such a it's such a bad representation like even my first paid modelling job I got flown to Italy 
and you then have such a ridiculous standard of what your jobs are all supposed to be like then because you're like well this is obviously every job now I get flown to a new country or every job is for tv now you know and then you soon realize no <laughs> you're just going to spend six months at home scratching your arse yeah the bar was set pretty high with those first jobs yeah and it was so cruel <laughs> that's not how it ends up but then you, you mentioned there about um, working on Sketchy, which is obviously a, kind of a sketch comedy show. Did you Was comedy something that you wanted to move towards at that time? Is that what you saw your end goal being? No. So when I was a first year at uni, I ended up becoming part of a comedy sketch group um, by chance. So I met one of my best friends now doing a like a beer promotional gig. Like we were like handing out free pints and like Morrison's or something. But this day we had to drive in a skeleton and a free pints and some dive down there as well. And um, he was all to me. He just moved back from Dundee. He was, he was at university and he was in a comedy group over there. He was like, I'd love to start up a comedy group here. And, you know, that we just got talking and I was like, God, I'd love to be so, part of something like that. And then we just sort of reached out to different people. And then he, he basically put it together. And I got a friend of mine to come along as well. And we became a group called FNT, Friday Night Therapy. So we used to, you know, um, create sort of one and a half hour, two hour shows, maybe every two months in Belfast in the Black Box. And that was my first real experience of, of comedy and sketch comedy. I'd never seen stand-up comedy only on TV. And even then, not that often. So it was like 18, 19 at that point. But it was from that show that I got booked for Sketchy for the BBC show. So I think that from then, I was like, God, I think I could have a grasp of performing comedy and, and maybe that's something I'd like to explore a bit more. Yeah, this is interesting because this leads into the next thing I wanted to ask you because you, you mentioned Sean there and you've been married for four years now and Sean is, is a very fine comedian in his own right. In the house, like for example, my, my wife is a graphic designer and people always say to us, oh, you must, it's such, it's such a creative household, it must be fantastic, it must be so creative. And, but we don't really talk about our I don't talk about the poetry and she doesn't really talk about the graphic design and we kind of just go about our own business and then when we're together we're talking about other things but yeah for, for, for a couple like yourselves who are both comedians and both you're trying to write jokes and be funny and and create in that kind of comedy environment is that something do you collaborate together do you bounce ideas around definitely do but we but we people have a, uh, an idea sometimes that we're just pissing ourselves off and all day long on the sofa <laughs> like we get that all the time if we do if we work together or do interviews together you know you're in work mode so you're maybe trying to be funny or whatever and people always like god your house must just be full of laughs you too much just sit there pissing yourselves laughing all day and you're like well no because life happens when you're at home like it's not but we we def like yeah like i think a fly on the wall would go you would say like for instance just this morning sean has gotten like this keyboard thing that has like a tube from it that you blow into it rather than plug it on and use batteries and then you oh, yeah. play it like an accordion like he's just got this in the past few days and he has been playing that loads and i have just been running around with sleigh, like we hand sleigh bells and it's like we think we're in a band in the house we've just been like messing but we we do often like our house is very creative we do often there's a lot, always like music on or you know we're, we watch a lot of comedy and we write lots all the time sean writes jokes all day long and we definitely do try to think about each other. The only thing is, though, is Sean has the attention span of a flea. And like this morning, so I have a deadline next week. I'm writing, an, I'm writing a short play for the Mac Theatre. They're releasing them in January. Like an audio lab, but you can listen to them online. And I 
was really struggling to come up with an idea and then I finally thought of something I wrote it out and I saw Deshaun this morning would you have would you mind having a read and give me some feedback and he was like it's not that I don't want to read it it's just I know I'm gonna get really distracted <laughs> useless for something to give me feedback because he just he just doesn't have the attention like we've been approached sometimes to maybe be in like short films together and someone will have sent us a script and Sean will just go would you you read that sure and let me know yeah yeah you make the decision um but we definitely do collaborate together a lot we write together like we wrote um two christmas shows that were supposed to be in theaters this christmas one was for the waterfront and one was for the opera house like adult to be performed by yourselves we were going to perform in the opera house show it was called home malone and we would be in that with another actor and then we wrote another one that was for the waterfront that other actors would be in because we did the waterfront one last year Mm. together but because of COVID, they're all cancelled. So um, those projects will go on next next Christmas. But yeah, so we do write together as well. Yeah, that, because that's one of the things I kind of wanted to start this podcast for was to talk to people about their creative process. Um, you mentioned like watching comedy and TV and so on. Like, is that somewhere you take a lot of inspiration from, or like where where do you go for inspiration? I would. I'm all. I actually have not watched that much stand up comedy in my life, and I. I'm almost afraid to, because I do not want to, by osmosis, allow somebody else's ideas or material to seep into my head. You're always so afraid as a stand-up to like perform something that's the same concept that somebody else is already doing. And for me, I'm, I'm afraid to watch too much stand-up comedy in case I get too influenced by somebody's style. Because I've seen so many comedians perform and you're like, oh, you're like a carbon copy of X, Y, or Z. Yeah, yeah. And you just don't want that. You don't want anyone to say that about you. So I think I also can't tell myself, right, oh, I have to sit down and write something. I have to sit down and write some stand-up now. Or, like, I haven't written stand-up in months because there's not been any gigs. So I haven't had the motivation to like, okay, you've got a few gigs coming up. Get writing some new stuff. So I think even at school, I was a pure crammer. It was like, you have an exam, you need to learn. But the rest of the year, I would have just sailed through. Yeah. So I think that's how I work is like, you've got a deadline and it has to be imminent. If you give me too much time, like I wrote a first draft of a play a few months ago, and then the producer was like, well, because it's not going to be on this year, there's no rush for the second draft. And I was like, yep, I won't get it until you will get it until you give me a date. Yeah, you won't get it until a week after you need it. Oh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then obviously you've talked about sure you and Sean supporting each other in, in your writing. What's, what's it like in the comedy circuit in general? Is there support amongst the, the comedians? Yeah, definitely. And and I think there is a misconception that, you know, everyone's out to step on each other to get, but there's, there's plenty of room for everybody, you know, and even in the acting world, like I have other actor friends who would ring me up and go, oh, they're casting for this at the minute. And there's a part in that I read, that I think it'd be great for you. You should get your agent on that. And I would do the same to other actor friends, because if that part is for you, then you're going to get it no matter who's auditioning for it. So you shouldn't be threatened by somebody else auditioning for it or letting other people know that something is coming up. Um, and the same in the, in the comedy circuit as well. I think that the comedians who are, who are doing really well, they're always very good for helping people who are newer. Like I'm quite new to stand up. I've, only been, I've been doing it two years and 10 months that I've been in lockdown. Um, so it's, I think I've been, I've been given great opportunities so far and I've been allowed to, beyond bills with people who've been doing it for 10 plus years so I do think there is great support there's also this like talk about you know 
female comedians being massively underrepresented here and not being given the chance, the same chance as male comedians and not being allowed on the same bill. And I have heard, you know, female comedians complaining about that. And that's fair enough. That's, that's how they feel. I have never experienced that. I have never felt that because I'm a female on a bill that I'm there to tick a box or that, you know, I can't get gigs because I'm a girl or, you know, I just, I, I know all the other comedians well enough and they would all say, just if, if you're if you're performing well enough, you'll get booked for the gigs and that's it, you know, mm. no matter what your gender is. So I, I haven't fallen victim to that, like, oh, I'm a, a female comedian, really struggling to be in a man's world. But I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm sure it does. I just haven't had the rub to that at all. I feel like I've been welcomed in with open arms. Yeah, the, in the comedy, not just talking like locally, but the comedy circuit, say within the UK and Ireland it, it is very heavily dominated by male comedians and I'm not, I'm not really sure why that is I don't know if you have any thoughts on that I, I do think up until recently many women did not try stand-up comedy um, and that probably has come from a, a pressure of feeling that audiences don't find women funny Um, also just you know we're moving into a new era. I think like for, for many, many years, it's mostly been men on TV anyway, whether they were actors, presenters, sports stars, or um, or comedians, just highly like dominated by men on TV. And it includes the comedy world. So I think that it's down to commissioners as well to just hit more women on the, on the, on TV in a comedy sense, you know, like I'm, um, going on as a panellist on the blame game in a few weeks time and I don't think they've ever had a female panellist on that show you know they've they have lots of female guests this series I think is all female guests nearly but as regards putting one on the panel instead of one of the guys I think that's something new that they're trying and you know it's about time that more shows do that okay so you're, you're going to be a permanent panellist on, on the well game? no not permanent because every series is it's on a commission to commission basis, but I'm doing, I'm only doing an episode of this series as a panelist. Um, and then we'll see down the line, who knows, you know, more could come from that. Um, we'll just see how it works for us both ways, I suppose. But it's definitely something that um, more TV shows should be doing is just, they're even, even, um, even movies and TV shows as regards roles. There's so many of them that you could swap out the, the male rules and put the female in and it doesn't make a difference to the storyline. See, just jumping back to the blame game, I mean, I've obviously seen it on TV. I've actually been lucky to go to a couple of recordings as well, um, the live shows and, and some of the stuff they say that doesn't get broadcast is actually funnier, but I can understand why it doesn't get broadcast. But how, I mean, do you get nervous at that type of gig? Like I would, I would be petrified going on stage and having to have to be funny. Yeah, awful. It's awful. It's the worst thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, I did, I did an episode of the blame game last series as a guest. But the week I did it was Children in Need. So it, there was no slot for it to broadcast on a Friday night because the, sh the show broadcasts on a Friday night. And then on a Saturday morning, it, it's aired on the, a more edited, cleaner version is aired on BBC Radio Ulster on the Saturday morning. So every year when they do their series, they do like seven televised and then eight broadcasts on the radio. So there's one extra. So I did that one extra episode. And even that, the fear of like having to be, and there was no cameras. It was just all, it was live audience, but there was no cameras. And the fear of that like happened to be I've done other panel shows but not everyone was a comedian so there wasn't that like pressure mm. 
but the, with the blame game there definitely is that pressure of like okay when you're saying something it needs to be funny because otherwise don't open your mouth so yeah. then some people some people don't end up opening their mouth yeah and it's coming with that bbc branding and there's a big audience and the lights in the studio and there's a lot of kind of expectation that's yeah. it yeah and people uh, obviously think a lot of the the humor on it is, is local and it's political and satirical um and lots of that goes over my head despite the fact i've been working with the hole in the wall gang for years and that's their forte so much of it goes over my head so i'm just like hoping that i can slot in and do my own thing yeah well that's that's you're, you've been playing uncle andy's daughter Gronya in give my headpiece yeah and we're back this year as well um there's a christmas special and there's three more episodes in january and so i'm back as uncle andy's uh, long lost daughter so i don't I, there's no actual air date for that yet but i have a feeling it could be on christmas night because that's the the, the friday before is when i'm on the blame game and the friday night is the comedy night slot so it could be on on christmas night we'll find out very soon and have you enjoyed the, the give my headpiece experience yes do you know what i grew up watching it and my family mm. watched it growing up so we did uh our cast photograph there for the christmas special I've been working with those guys for years. I consider them friends. I've done five or six series of Perfect Elster, the radio show. This is the third series of Give My Headpiece that I've been in. And I I was like looking around going, oh, there's like, you know, Da, Ma, Cal, Billy the Peeler, Uncle Andy, Pastor Begbie, and then me and Dumpna. And I was like, I'm like, the, I'm, I felt like really honored to be part of that cast photograph and part of the, like a new addition to the, as a regular role. Because it's something, it's like a, it's, it's the foundation of comedy here. You know, it's the, it's the one long running successful thing, whether you're a massive fan of it or not. And actually they're also, most of them just get really nervous before they perform as well. There's absolute, there's not one ego in that room between any of them, despite all of their combined success. They're the most humble people and always making sure you're okay. And very complimentary of everybody who comes in and works alongside them. They're, they're they're a real example of a group of guys who have had huge success but behave as if it's their first gig ever is the is the script like a collaborative process or is it would you get sent the script and you just kind of learn the lines or what way does that work yeah like the the three the three guys so damon um martin martin michael who's martin <laughs> damon michael and tim who are the hole in the wall gang like they write it i think they allow you know we can try things on set they're totally fine with that you know when we we actually shot a scene there for the christmas special and it said in the script you know Gronya and andy have had a few drinks but then myself and marty reed who plays uncle andy played it blind drunk like not actually drunk because i'm obviously pregnant but we played it like completely plastered and then i think that's when they were like okay this is this scene's taking a different direction now so we're going to like change the background to make it look like it's the end of the night because these two are playing this completely smashed and it's funny so we're going to go with that so yeah like they allow you this sort of you know your own spin on things or and then whenever we do the radio show i started writing sketches and stuff for that as well so they do allow you they're not like precious in the sense like no this is what we're doing this is what we've written and you just read the lines they're very open to to, to anybody pitching in yeah, contributing. I read somewhere, like this is moving on now to your the other BBC show, The South Border Patrol. Um, I read somewhere that it's it's more collaborative or it's more kind of improv based. Is that is that true? All improv, yeah, yeah. So there are no scripts on that show. There are beat sheets. So there are writers who there's not many people know this about South Border Patrol, and I think it actually gives you a better understanding of the show and more of a respect for 
for the show. So yeah, it was still Border Patrol. It's exhausting. Like it's a it's an exhausting job, but it's it's the most rewarding job because you improvise, you know. So every everything that comes out of your mouth, you thought of there and then. There's no very little prep, but you are given a beat sheet. So writers do come up with ideas, like they might say, okay, you know. Connor and Tracy, which is myself and Patty Buchanan, meet um, the Continuity Nine guys, who are like the guys who are always fighting for uh, United Ulster. And they're trying to move the border one inch at a time, but they're moving it the wrong way. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, what you would be told. And then you just run with it. Like you can maybe try and script yourself a couple little one-liners or funny wee jokes that you might try and squeeze in. But obviously, it's when you're improvising with other people, you can't just go in your own direction for something you've premeditated. You, you need to work with the other person. If they say something, you have to listen. It's the most important thing. Um, so it's it's really enjoyable, but it's really exhausting. And none of the lines are scripted. So I think that almost gives people a bit of a, ah, okay, well then that's, that's why it sounds so off the cuff. I think that would be my worst nightmare under that kind of pressure to try and create even not even trying to be funny just maybe even trying to write a poem under that kind of pressure I and do you know when you're starving and it's like not lunchtime yet and you're like freezing because you've been outside all day and you're just not feeling funny <laughs> you're just yeah. you know we, we have to improvise because if you're starving and freezing not feeling funny you can still deliver somebody else's lines but if you're starving and freezing and not feeling funny and you have to improvise it's a whole different ball game but the uh just like talking about comedy and poetry the those two scenes, the local kind of performance scenes, kind of sometimes intermingle. And I have done a few comedy nights. I'm not really a, a funny poet. I have some funny poems. So I've done it, the odd comedy night. But I definitely feel more pressure on those nights. Like when I do, a, a, say, a funny poem and a, at a poetry night, if, it, if it's not funny, if the audience don't enjoy it, they'll still clap. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas you go to a comedy night, it's a little bit more brutal. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. That's why I enjoy writing comedy plays. It's way easier audience to entertain because they're like they're there for a story and a show and a night out. And it's almost like, oh, there's jokes as well. Happy days. That's funny. Whereas if you're going to a comedy club and you're a comedy club audience member, you're just expecting jokes. And if you don't get funny ones, you're not going. You're almost like it's like Dragon's Den. You're like, I'm not going to give you anything unless you provide me with a funny joke, you know. I haven't had awful experiences yet at gigs. I've definitely had ones that come off going, I'm never gigging again in my life. But I haven't had like really, truly terrible, terrible gigs yet. I'm sure, I'm sure they'll happen. The only, the only bad gig or the most memorable bad gig I had was actually meant to be a comedy night. Oh. And it was. And when you say meant to be, did it not end up because nobody was funny? What happened was I was part of a, a performance poetry group and we were asked to join in with this comedy night. It was actually for Comic Relief and it was in the Parador pub on the Ormo Road in Belfast on like a, you know, whatever na Friday night that uh, Comic Relief was happening. So we were told it's a comedy night, but we want poets in between the comedians to do like maybe 15 minutes kind of max. Just that's, 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 that's no problem. I can do that. So there wasn't that expectation of we have to be funny because the comedians are kind of going to take care of that. Yeah. And we can just kind of do our thing and that's fine. So there's, there was actually three of us went down. There was myself and Diane Morrison, who is a funny poet, but she, she mainly does um, comedy kind of songs, a bit like sort of Victoria Wood style. And then there was Chris McLaughlin, who was my housemate at the time. And he, he wasn't necessarily a funny poet, but he was a really good performer and quite sociable and good with the audience. And that. so I was fairly confident we would do a good gig. But we got to the power door and it was heaving. It was a, kind of a normal Friday night and it was bunged, which I thought was this is great, good crowd in. 
And then we saw that we met the promoter, who I think was called Anne. And she said, our first words were, the comedians haven't turned up. They're not coming. They've cancelled. Who were those comedians? Are you going to name and shame? I, I actually can't remember. Okay. I, I think I can remember one name, but I'll not say it on, on the podcast. But I said, the comedians have all cancelled. It's just you guys. Can you go on later and do a longer set? That's when the panic starts setting in. So anyway, we have, we kind of regroup and we edit our set list and we think about what, oh, geez, okay, we've got to get, get our head around this. And then, I don't know if you've ever been in the Parador. It's, it's quite a kind of tight fit sort of square pub. As you walk in the front door, the bar kind of stretches out in front of you in the middle of the room. On the left-hand side is where the, the stage was, if you can call it that. It was just really a microphone and a stand. So we were looking at this microphone in the corner, thinking, my God, this is going to be awful. And the worst part was there was a, the table right beside the stage where's the hen do. And they, they hadn't come for the entertainment. They were just on a on the kind of night out for the hen do. But yeah. it wasn't like a young crowd of, oh, let's have cocktails with the girlies. It was older women who were like vodka and white kind of crowd. Or felt normally. So Diane said she would, she would go on first. And she had a backing track. She had like an MP3 player. So she had the backing track and she was singing her songs. And the, the hen do got their backs up then because they didn't want this noise happening beside them. But because the music was there, they, you couldn't really hear the the abuse that was kind of being thrown. And then I was going on next. So Dan got off and then I went on and I had a, I opened with a poem called The Fresh Prince of Banbridge, which right. is a, par- a parody of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I kind of did the rap and it was, it was it's quite a funny poem. Yeah. And a, f- a few kids at the back enjoyed it, but the Hindu just did not like it. One of them shouted, why are you rapping? Who are you? <laughs> which is, and like they're, they're literally five feet from me. So it's, it's really in- it's intimidating and off-putting. But there was always a poem that I used to finish those kind of sets with called Northern Iron, which for anyone's listening who's not from here, it's the way we say Northern Ireland. And in terms of funny poems, that's the funniest I have. And that it was always one that would kind of, yeah, if the rest of the set didn't go well, that was always the one I could rely on. So I thought I'm going to have to bring this out right now. So I, I started into it and it starts off kind of serious, but it, it builds into and it's, it's really like a lot of funny lines about Northern Ireland and, and Northern Irish people would get connect with a lot of it. But one of the verses finishes with the line, I once had a crush on Johnny Adair. And if, for people who are listening who don't know who that is, that was a prominent loyalist paramilitary during the, during the 90s. And I still remember saying that line and the, there was a whole load of like men lined up at the bar sitting, enjoying their pints in their chat. And as soon as I said that line, they all stopped and turned towards the stage and kind of leant backwards and looked at me. I'm thinking, this, oh. really, isn't the, this really isn't the place to be doing this poem. I'm because, in trouble. Because a lot of it is kind of, satirical and ironic and so on but the parador crowd on a friday night isn't big on satire <laughs> oh, apparently not audiences like you just there are some audience members who have balls of steel and have no problem shouting anything out and like just telling you to get off stage or you're not funny or like it just they don't care it's so rude but they don't like there are some people who just say whatever they want that's exactly what it, what the what the handy said to me. You're not funny. Get off. And I was like, uh, and I was meant to, I was meant to do that fifteen minutes, and I just handed the microphone back after Nora and Aaron and just said, "That's it. I'm done." Chris, you're up. <laughs> I know it's bizarre, isn't it? You're like where do, and and you you pit, you keep hitting yourself in that position. You go and you do another gig, and you're like just allowing yourself to be open to so much to so much criticism and judgment. But then when it goes well, it's always worth it. You know, if you get a if you have a, a great gig and you're like. I think I'm killing it. You're just doing such a, if it's, if it's great, you know, you just think I could do this week after week after week. Yeah, yeah. But we came away from that gig and I was, we were in the car driving back 
and we're just kind of almost laughing about it, saying no matter what happens in our performance career after this, it'll never be as bad as that again. And we just you move on from it. You try not to dwell too much. Yeah. But I read I read somewhere that you had actually had a gig for the lockdown drive-in. That was back in September. Yes, it was like down to Titanic Court or somewhere. It was a great. It was great. Now I was obviously really worried about talking to a whole bunch of windscreens like there was no car like there were shutters all there was was cars filled with people so you couldn't hear if anyone was laughing but you also couldn't hear if they weren't laughing which i enjoyed more if i don't know if they're laughing or not i'm going to tell myself they are so the microphone was kind of tuned to this radio frequency and then they were tuned in listening in their cars yes so they were there they, they could listen in their car but it was also projected onto a big big screen or you know streamed through a big screen they could watch you on a big screen and see you on the stage in front of them and then listen to you very clearly through their radio frequency in their car. Um, it just meant it was weird if you were on stage and you were listening to the other, because like, myself and Sean and Mickey Bartlett did that one. And if you could hear, you know, a comedian finishes a bit and you usually expect to have a bit of laughter to transition you into like the next, the, a new story or a new joke. And if there is none, that usually means you're dying if it's on stage. But in this instance, you couldn't hear anybody because they were in their cars. So it was so weird. But the the, the stewards and the, the guys that were working there were like, no, they're laughing. You can see them laughing in their car. So it's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> and, it was, and I actually I actually really enjoyed it. Sean really enjoyed it too. I think Mickey was like, I can't cope with not knowing if they're laughing or not. That's driving me mad. <laughs> yeah, it seems, it seems like such an odd experience. So bizarre because mo- more than any other, I think, genre, stand-up comedy completely relies on an audience which is why I have refused to do any Zoom gigs over lockdown. I can't see, I just, I'm like, no, the delay and doing your material in your living room and hoping that people, like, I just think it has to be in front of you. You have to be in front of that person. Has there been any poetry nights on at all or is everything completely? No, it's all, it's, it's all just been online. I did one, the last time I was on stage was actually for the Dunkern. It was part of like a, a take two event that they've been doing, just like a, a broadcast they do on Saturday nights. And but it was only for kind of the camera crew, you know, the film crew. But it was great to be behind the microphone again performing. Yeah. Just to kind of blow the cobwebs off and that. Uh I think maybe next year when if if live readings, etc. do come back or live performances, the poetry could be one of the first because the audiences audiences are usually limited anyway. Yeah. Big and price. it's one person normally in front of a microphone rather than like a show of people like a production, you know. Yeah, it's a basic setup. You know, you can do things in libraries, smaller kind of venues like that. So hopefully, yeah. What other projects have you been working on? You talked about writing. Yes. So I wrote a short film for BBC iPlayer, which will was supposed to be shot in September, but COVID. So we'll be shooting it next year. It's called Shit Stepmom, based on my experiences of being a stepmom. It's a comedy. And then I've also written an episode of What Happens in Ulster. So that's a radio series that will be out early next year on BBC Radio Ulster. It's a true crime parody. And we did a pilot of it a few months ago. I think it's on BBC Sounds. So I've written an episode of that and we're recording those next week. I've written about six plays in the past year and a half that were all supposed to be in theatres already, but they hopefully will be out next year. Um, I wrote one called Sunny Side Up that's for the Mac. It'll be, I think it'll be the Mac next year. Um, and it's a dark comedy about my whole I- IVF experience and getting pregnant and stuff. Many congratulations on the pregnancy. Thank you. I mean, I have, I have a close friend who him and his wife have been through a similar process. So I, I have a kind of basic understanding of what it entailed. And it, I know it's been a, 
a tough road, I'm sure. Yeah, like we started the process about it did, about six years ago, um, when see Sean had had a vasectomy after he had three children, and then when we met, we were obviously like, well, we want to have children together. So that journey started within about two years of us meeting, and it just took a really long time. But because Sean already had children, I wasn't allowed to have any IVF on the NHS, um, which I thought was really unfair because I I didn't have any kids. And that's something I think they're working to change at the minute. The regulations around who is allowed funded IVF cycles from the NHS is very strict. But then in saying that, I do know people who have had their own biological children and then struggled to have more and then were allowed to have uh, a go on the NHS. We don't really know what happened. So we funded ours privately anyway. And yeah, it just takes a lot of time. It's a lot of prep. And we did it before and it didn't work. Um, so that was our second time for, for this pregnancy. And how far along are you at the minute? I'm 23 weeks, so over the halfway mark, feeling every second of it. I had a really sick pregnancy, I had really bad sickness, um, which is why all the writing work was great, because I was able to just sit on the sofa, book <laughs> and write. <laughs> mm. So, I, But honestly, if I had, if COVID hadn't happened and I had to do all the plays that I was booked to do, I would have had to have cancelled them, I'd have had to have been recast, because I just physically couldn't stand up for weeks. And because obviously you've got this baby coming next year, have you been so creative this year? Because you're thinking, I'm not going to have the time. Yeah, I'm thinking, which is a good thing. All of the shows that were cancelled this year will hopefully go on next year. So I don't really worry about trying to fill the diary too much. Mm. Um, and also the more um, I can establish myself as a writer, the more I can work from home. As, as, but also, you know, Sean and I, because we're both self-employed and both freelance, there's always one of us that will be able to, look after the baby and it might just be like a rock and roll stage baby but we'll just keep it in the wings and go on stage and just keep a wee eye on it every now and then <laughs> from the stage because actually this is we were talking having this conversation earlier that Sean and I will both be in our Christmas show that we've written next year for the opera house so we just have to bring the baby I don't know <laughs> yeah that might be a nice touch towards the end or something bring the baby on bring the baby on yeah show it off so she's due in March. So we're having a wee girl. She's due in March. Going back to the point at the start, you're going to have, what, another 10 or 11 years now of, of magical Christmases then with Santa and everything else? And yeah, so we're starting that whole process over again where we can do the whole Santa stuff and the whole carrots and cookies and Christmas stuff, yeah. So I might start Christmas. We're calling our child winter as well. Like we're obsessed with winter and Christmas and uh, so it might start Christmas even earlier next year. It could, we could be just sacking Halloween and just starting straight away. What was the thinking behind the name then? I just like how it sounds. And mm. also she was frozen. She was an, a frozen embryo. And I also knew that I wanted to name my child something that was a wee bit different. I just thought, well, her, her parents are both performers. Maybe just something a wee bit, a wee bit different. Yeah. I don't know anyone else called Winter. I know there are people called Winter, though, but I just thought, well, I have a strange name as well. Like, my parents made up my name. My dad's called Dee and my mum's called Donna. They put it together and got Diona. Never had a key ring in my life or a personalised anything because you couldn't get them in Tenerife in the early 2000s like everyone else got. So I uh, thought, well, I, I may as well carry on that tradition and give her a, a really a name that's going to cause her trouble her whole life, like mine says. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that about your name because now you think mentioned it, I've never heard of anyone else called Diona. My mum and dad have been together since they were 14 so they made up this name and they're in their early teens they have me in their 20s but they you're waiting on me telling you that my mum and dad had me when they were 14. <laughs> 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 it's the first thing we could think of. 
No. So my dad's Dave, my mum's Donna, my brother's Darn, and I'm Diona, and we're Doherty, and we're from Derry, so we're sort of like the Kardashians <laughs> of Derry. Yeah, that's that's going to be the clip now that we're going to use to promote this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're like the Kardashians, without the asses and the money. But I mean, you've you've got such a, a busy, you've had such a busy year, and you've got such a busy year coming up. And there was there was a an interview I read with you recently with you did it with the the Irish News. Right. What I say? Who do I incriminate? I said you you flagged off a few people here. No, you haven't. You've said what you said was, I don't feel that I'm someone who has had that big big break. Yeah. You, went on, you went on to say then, but you have had constant work for the past seven or eight years, so you're quite happy with that. Like, what what would success mean to you? Would it be getting the big break? Well, see, I think a big break is a curse. I don't want the. I mean, obviously, it just depends what it is. I think that people have. I think there's a. I think there's an idea of what a big break is, and then it's a single your single defining job that defines your career and sets you up for you know X, Y, and Z. I don't know if I want people to look at me and not be able to see past one character that I've played because then that really pigeonholes you. And I know that I know many actors that's happened to and they've struggled to shake off a certain role they've played for a couple of years or something that was a big hit and they're like struggling to get other work. I am quite happy knowing that I'm not specifically known for one thing, which means I can get booked for lots of things, you know. I know many actors who are way more well known than I am and in, maybe in, in big hit shows, but they spend 10 months of the year struggling for work, you know? Mm. So I think to me, success is being able to, to, to work all year round and, and still really enjoy it and not worry about having to pay your bills because you know that you're, you're sort of okay. You've got that income coming in. Um, I also think success is being able to pick and choose your work and not having to take all of the, the creative work that comes your way that you can be, be a bit more choosy about it. I think in the past maybe year or two, I've been able to turn things down because I, I haven't desperately needed the, you know, the chance of the exposure or the money from that because I've decided, no, actually, no, I can decide that's not right for me, that specific job, so I'll say no to that. So I think that's what success is. It's not what people, if you're on a big, big TV show or you're, on a, you're doing big shows or whatever it is, that you automatically have lots of money and that you have lots of work because a lot of the time, you find it very difficult to get other work if you're really well known for one thing. So what I meant in that article about I don't feel like I've had my big break is I don't feel like I need a big break. I, I know I can consistently work anyway. So it's it's just a it's just a phrase that's thrown around, isn't it? Yeah. Well actually I heard another quote recently which kind of inspired me and the quote was it's not about how much money you make, it's about how you make your money. I was going, Wow, that that really resonated with me. Because obviously I'm in the in the poetry game and there's it's never been affluent with money. But it's something I enjoy doing and I love um, writing and creating and putting together this podcast and chatting to people and so on. So that's and I think that you can't you can't define what you know what you do. If someone goes, What do you do based on what money you make from that? You know, it's what you spend your time, what's what consumes your time, you know, what you what you spend most time thinking about and 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 wanting to evolve and work on. That's that's what defines who what you do. Do you ever find when you're out and, and say you get introduced to someone and they say, oh, this is, this is, do you know, this is a comedian? And the person goes, oh, you're a comedian? Tell us a joke then. God almighty, all the time. <laughs> Sean gets it way more than I do. Sean gets it at every wedding he's at, every funeral, every, all the time. Tell us a joke, especially because he is a one-liner comedian. And it's like, you know, you wouldn't say to a plumber, oh, he's a plumber, go fix my toilet then. 
you know, uh, yeah, prove it. Prove it. Like you just don't do that. Like that's it to anybody else. But you think people do, but just almost take for granted that entertainers just want to entertain twenty four seven. Whereas there's time for sleeping and eating and not entertaining as well. You don't. That's not. That's not yeah. the case. I either get, oh, you're a poet. Tell us a poem. Or they say, you're a poet and you know it. Jesus. Like, if I had a pound for every time I'd heard it, I would be a very wealthy poet. <laughs> yeah. I also get asked a lot in interviews, like, so what's it like being a female in comedy? You know, as if you're some rare species or breed or like you've got, you're, you're bound to have a horror story of some male comedian making you feel like shit. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. just, just, it's just the same as being a female and something else. It's just, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a female and I do comedy. Why, why do we have to keep making a big thing about it? You know? So how do you feel being a female in comedy? I know. No, I'm only joking. I do have a, I do have another question, and it's, it was one I was going to ask um, everyone kind of going forward, and it, it is, what advice would you have for people starting out? But I think because of all the things you've told me, I might change it to what advice would you have maybe for creatives who have been, have been struggling this year and haven't been feeling as productive and as creative as they'd like to have been? Is there any tips you can give? I, it is absolutely fine to do bugger all. I think as a creative, you put so much pressure on yourself to constantly be creating because you're convinced that everyone else is and that everyone else is doing a million things a day and that you're not pushing yourself forward. I think at the beginning of lockdown, when all my work got cancelled and I was devastated, it took me a long time to register that everyone's work was cancelled. Like everyone was, was on pause. It wasn't just me. Also, actually, one piece of advice I would give is unfollow everyone whose success makes you feel inadequate online if you're comparing yourself to other you know poets or rappers or writers or performers and their success makes you feel like oh god maybe I haven't done enough yet because that person's three years younger than me and they have a BAFTA you know that sort of thing don't don't follow not that that person's toxic but that that experience of comparing yourself to people who are considered more successful will ruin your head and it'll take your focus away from what you should be doing it can make you just feel like shit about what you're doing you know and I and I was so guilty of it for such a long time and it's maybe only this past year and a half that I have decided I'm not going to follow anybody on Instagram or Twitter or anybody online whose success I keep comparing myself to because maybe we're the same age range or maybe they're also Irish or maybe they've just made bigger movies or done done something that's deemed more successful than I and then you you just compare yourself and it's so toxic for your own head and I'm a much happier person for not having for, for unfollowing all, all those people and then I'm going to make a nice link now so I'm going to ask ask you to tell people your own social media profiles that they can follow you and see what you're up to <laughs> don't just follow shit <laughs> um I at Diona, D-I-O-N-A, Doherty, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y on Instagram and Twitter. Don't expect much. Although today I did show people all seven of my Christmas trees. So that won't be, that story won't be available by the time this goes out. But there might be some other golden crap. Now get, the, get that in highlights. That's the content we want to see. As well as the Shakira, Shakira impression. We want a, a short video of that too. One that, like the one that sent me back on the bus to Derry and not through on Eurostar. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's been great so th thank you for joining me on the podcast and having the chat and giving all that advice as well it's been it's been great to hear that the, the journey is continuing and even more exciting year ahead with the baby on the way 
Yes, no, thanks for having me. It's great to get an hour and a half to talk about yourself, isn't it? <laughs> 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 thanks for having me. It's been a lovely chat. So why does Shakira have trouble sleeping at night? Because her hips won't lie. And that's why I do poetry and not comedy. Thank you again to the delightful Diona Doherty from Derry for the discussion. And just to confirm that you can see Diona on The Blame Game on BBC One next Friday night, which is the 18th of December and in the Give My Head Peace Christmas special, which will be broadcast on BBC One on Sunday the 27th of December. It was actually through the BBC that I came to know Diona as we worked on a project for the Beeb at the end of 2018. So I was commissioned to write a poem for BBC Northern Ireland, which was to be a kind of inspirational poem that celebrated BBC NI's shows and successes over the year, and which was broadcast on the TV over Christmas and New Year period 2018 going into 2019. But they brought Diona in to read my words. So it's her that you see on screen delivering the poem. And I mean, of course, I would have loved to have been on, on your TV screens, but it made sense to give a professional actor the job instead. Plus, I think audiences would rather look at Diona than me. But it was still a fantastic experience. And there's no doubt that Diona did a brilliant job. You can actually view a short documentary about the experience on my YouTube channel and on my website, which includes behind the scenes footage and indeed the advert that was broadcast. So check that out if you're interested. I'm going to finish this week's podcast with another poem that was written for the BBC, albeit for Radio Ulster, and it's called Digital Age. However, this version includes the stanza about Jesus, which was deemed too hot for radio. But as I'm the host of this podcast, no one's going to tell me what to do. So this is digital age. We are living in a digital age where a screen has been replaced by a page and a swipe is mightier than a sword. And it could be what's left of my imagination but it seems to me that every child looks bored. Every speech reduced to sound bites and try as you might you won't find any virtue in virtual reality. When did a social network become more important than to network socially? No one is regretful. And everyone is forgetful as everything can be googled. This week I've learned how to change a fuse by watching a video on YouTube. Even Facebook has become a verb. And in the web's wide world more people have access to the internet that can drink clean water. If this were Bible times we'd probably ask Jesus to turn water into Wi-Fi. But he only had 12 followers. And one of those he should have blocked. So please tell me where all of this stops. We view our lives through filters. Cameras are turned inward. I used to meet my friends and see eye to eye, but now I'm looking down their nose while they're looking at a screen. It's like everyone chose the blue pill to stay within the dream. We used to meet for dinner and a catch-up. Now it's a takeaway coffee and a Snapchat. And although there's no I in team, there's an I in iPad and iPhone, and I don't know where we're going. The future is still loading, buffering at 70%, 80%, 90%. I have a stream, sorry, I have a dream, that one day I'll go out to a restaurant and not ask to use a plug, that one day we'll stop looking down from above and that one day hackers will be able to hack into love. But I'm not anti-social media, I just want to see the world how it really is. I've rolled on the floor laughing more than a few times but not once was that caused by something I read online. 
I want to live my life without an autocorrect, to feel a real connection and to improve my mental health, because emotions conveyed by emojis is only adding to this mess. So now tell me how you're feeling in 140 characters or less. And on that note, if you've enjoyed this podcast, feel free to give us a mention or share on your chosen social media platform. The next podcast will be the Christmas special and will be one not to miss. So make sure you're subscribed. For now, though, I have a dog that needs walked and only so many daylight hours to do it in. So I will bid you goodbye. Auf Wiedersehen. Adios and toodaloo.